0: All right. So um, we're we've formally started and um, I'm Luis Malmadrona and this is Alistair Bush talking to me from New Zealand. I'm located in Maine in the United States. And um, Alistair and I share uh, a common activity that we're both collaborating with traditional healers, he in New Zealand and me in the United States. And we thought it would be interesting to have a conversation together about how one does that, because it's not something that we learned in psychiatric residency. No one taught us how to hang out with traditional healers. (laughs) And so, so I thought maybe we could start, maybe we'll start by me asking Alistair, so how did you learn how to hang out
1: with Wiramu? Well,
2: I'm um, ora Lewis and greetings everyone. Lovely to um, be having another conversation, Lewis. And I've just realized that there's a map, on, map behind me on the wall and I can actually show you where, where we are. The, so here's the South Pacific and most, you might be able to see Australia here and Aotearoa, New Zealand, just down here. Um, and so I think y- your question was how did I learn to hang out with uh, traditional healers? Right. So with,
0: right. Where am I, um, Nia, Nia? Being so the, um,
2: yeah. <coughs> yes. So um, I've been fortunate to work in an Indigenous Māori mental health service over the last 15 years and I think prior to that I'd spent some time at a family therapy agency which specialised in Māori, Pacific, Māori and Samoan as well as New Zealand European or Pākehā uh, family therapy and so it was there that I got used to spending time with Māori workers and with Pacific workers and so I guess I had a bit of a grounding in the cultures that um, I then, that was before I was a psychiatrist and later at once I'd finished my psychiatric training and during my psychiatric training, actually I'd, I had worked in the Maori service for a year. So I guess I was fortunate to have that grounding. And then when I came back to work in our Maori service, I just got to know what as a colleague and he has, Job just said nothing about whether he was a Māori healer or not. He was employed as a cultural therapist. So um, I sort of got to know him. And then I got curious about what he was doing because I realized families really liked seeing him. And I couldn't figure out why, except that he seemed like a nice guy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So and then I heard about some of the results he was getting because I heard stories about families where things improved dramatically and i i really couldn't fathom why that's oh hello Looks here he like, is he's coming
0: us. yes how exciting
2: yes and even better he's got uh, leslie's face on his um on his oh. zoom picture
0: how about that than
2: enough What a wonderful bonus! What a move. We weren't sure whether you could join us. Not sure whether you've got your audio yet.
0: If you if you do, we can't hear you.
2: Yeah. Um. So, um, I don't know whether you can hear us, Whatamu, but. Um, Lewis was just um, asking me how I came to get get used to hanging out with you, pretty much, um, and and I guess what it might what it might mean to it's it's kind of about collaboration, really, Lewis, isn't it? From the it from is the indeed psychiatrist side, yeah,
0: right, right,
2: and also you were talking about the exploring the whole idea of two-eyed seeing and how we can work together so that we can have those different perspectives
0: right and and we were talking a bit about how we have multiple audiences and so Alistair and I both being psychiatrists have psychiatric um, organizations that scrutinize us I mean Mm -hmm. You know, they're they're watching and 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 so we have we have them. And for me, being an also indigenous, I'm always worried about how the elders back home perceive me and and also here in Maine, how the elders locally perceive me. And so there's a lot of audiences that are looking at us while we're trying to do or we're trying to hold, you know, where we have our training, you know, the perspective that we learned. And I think we both probably have some criticisms of mainstream psychiatry. And then we have the indigenous world in which we're immersed. And um, so we were talking about how to negotiate all of those audiences that are watching us. We can hear you now, we're mu. Oh, you can hear me. Yes, we can yeah. hear you.
1: Can you we can see you.
0: We see oh. you. We hear I you. Just,
1: I just <laughs> saying to You're my colleague. You. Okay? I can hear them but they can't see or hear me.
0: No, we we see and hear you. Awesome. Cool. <laughs> Very cool. So we can we can have a great conversation now that we're all three together. Mm. So, um do you want to finish up with that thought, Alistair, that we were and then we'll we'll Pull in Wiramu will have something to say about
2: that. So I guess the um, hanging out with Wiramu, I guess, came about through d- different stages of being a co-loc- you know, being working in the same team, and then gradually from, you know, it was about me getting curious about his perspective on things and then curious about some of the results he was getting and and then spending time together. And and for me, I was really motivated. I was always curious and he would give me some little piece of information. And then I'd be curious about what the bigger picture is around that. And eventually I said, well, look, I really want to, is it all right if I sit in with you while you're meeting with the family? And so, I, so I, I got to do that. And then I was curious about what he'd done. So then, and so he was always very generous about, about explaining. And he had this way of explaining, which um, uh, he, uh, he used metaphors that I could understand. Um, so, and then I, then I think we had an opportunity to present a story about a young person to some colleagues and I was quite scared about doing that because I thought I would be sort of criticized or people would think it was strange. But actually everyone was interested. So it was, it was a case of one thing leading to another most of the way through.
0: Mm. <clears throat> but we're a, you must have recognized <laughs> that Alistair was different from most pakeha because he's curious
2: Mm.
0: and and um Um, very cute yeah (laughs) (laughs) i mean and that's a good thing it's so good to be curious Mm. because
1: most serious fighting at my heels all the time Are
2: you familiar with the fox terrier breed, Lewis? Yes, indeed. I am. Yes.
0: (laughs) Yes. Are you saying you're a fox terrier?
2: (laughs) Well, that's what Witamo says I am. (laughs) When I'm asking him questions, I'm sort of like biting at his ankles. (laughs) (laughs) But but you know, I've just got up
1: another theme, so I'm (laughs) putting the Where would you gentlemen like me? What would you like me to do? Well would be we like you I'm to quite do happy to just sit in the okay. Well
0: you can do you may do whatever you want. We we started this conversation about um, how do we how do we make genuine collaborations? Because they're, they're I think they're actually rare. And, um, you know, I I mean, for the most part, our conventional services assume that they're right and everyone else is wrong. Mm. And there's no opportunity for collaboration for two eyed seeing. And and I know that, you know, for myself, I mean, I know. I grew up in an indigenous world, and I, I understood intuitively the importance of elders. And, and when I entered the mainstream world, I had a lot of culture shock, but, but um, I got through that and I came to a point where I would bring people, to work with traditional healers, elders, <clears throat> and even many indigenous people by birth, didn't know how to approach elders, and so I would have to teach them how to mm-hmm. behave before we went to see the elder. And and um, what what Alistair. Go ahead. What Alistair and I were talking about was was how we're so acutely aware of all of the different people watching us as we negotiate these interactions. And I and I think what I, I really want people to know is is um, the incredible importance of non-judgmental non-interpretive curiosity cuz i i feel like that's what alistair demonstrated and you we're you, you can certainly comment on that but it seems to me that that's what's required for a really good collaboration so thoughts you guys
1: um I, I think one of the most important aspects of a good um, good relationship is starting it off on a level playing field. And the way to start it off on a level playing field is by being honest about what you think and feel. Um, I remember walking into Alistair's office, and we've talked about it before, and saying, look, I really want to do this with you, but... In my time and in my mind, I was a radical who who really had a mistrust of colonialistic systems. And so I walked in and I said, I really want to do this, but I want you to know that I don't trust parties.
2: Mm.
1: Um And then I also said at the same time, I said, and I can see that you're probably thinking you don't trust Māori either. So, so we started <laughs> off on, on an even... Level playing field. Um, but we've had a relationship that's, it's, it, you know, I, I I, would love people to have the same kind of relationship where there's mutual respect, not only for what we do, but mutual respect as we are as people. Like I know that Alistair goes out of his way to do things for me because I'm a kaumata, I'm an elder. And I really appreciate that. Um, which makes the bond even a lot stronger because of that. Um, and probably that's that's the start anyway for me, um, Lewis. So back to you.
2: Well, And, and that's that- inter- interesting for me, Lewis, because what you what you were talking about, about um, learning how to approach elders, um, and I, I'm not sure that I've really thought about it in the way that Woodermuth just explained it, that... That part of our relationship is that I'm that I know that is in has elder status, and that I don't. So in some ways, it's not a level playing field. Um, but <laughs> I've, I've been, but I've been fortunate to be in a in a context, my working context, where elders are treated in a certain way, and have a certain kind of state. You know, the, the komatu status means that I've I've got some reference points for. Managing that, so I'm 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 interested in what what you discovered that your colleagues needed to learn about how to treat elders. What what did they need to learn?
0: Well, so in the mainstream North American world, um, there's generally people older people are are discounted and um, look, you know, people look down upon them. And, and so in the, I mean, in the indigenous world, we grow up venerating elders, I mean, we grow up, um, you know, you, 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 I mean, I've, I've sat with gangsters, with an elder, and they have behaved enormously respectfully because of their upbringing because they know this is an elder and you must behave in a certain way of showing respect and and i don't think they would do that for anyone else <clears throat> and and so um so people who are raised in the mainstream culture don't know how to show respect to elders or that elders deserve respect. and And so they have to they have to be taught. which, yes. which, which is odd. I mean, and I, I did see a study from um, China compared to the USA. And in China, people think that the, the greatest age, the best age to be is 80 years old. And in the USA, people think that the best age to be is 20 years old. And so, yeah. <clears throat> so what a mismatch. And so here in the USA, there's this, genuine dismissal of any, anyone who's older than 30. Um, and, and many indigenous people here have grown up off the reservation. And even though they've, they've, they have some intuitive understanding of elders, they still have to learn the ropes, you know, how things are. Um but but um <clears throat> but it's even harder with our colleagues, I think, with with most psychiatrists who know that they're right and that they have nothing to learn from indigenous people who are primitive and stupid. So um so clearly, Alistair, I mean there's something wonderfully different about you that we're recognized and and you guys could form a partnership and and I think that's what we're really that's what we really wanna discover is how do we form these collaborative relationships that can grow and blossom.
2: interesting that thing about um, that knowing we are right as psychiatrists and I think I was hoping I was right and then Wittemoe kept on planting these little seeds of doubt and then he'd leave them for me to um, uh, follow up and mull over and scratch my head about and then I would discover that I, at some point that I had no clue about Thing that i thought i knew about you know for example the, the question about whether someone's having a psychotic experience uh, you know all my um uh, training might have told me this was an auditory hallucination that this person was experiencing and then what am said well i can see that person as well or i, I can uh, i can see the person that 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 they're um experiencing And that didn't um, fit into my framework at all. And so what I'd hoped I was correct about, I was discovering that there's some logic here that's not fitting together. And what provides another bit of information and it it was troubling my uh, certainty. Um, And then I felt like the cracks were showing in my um, psychiatric perspective. It's um, not always comfortable.
0: No, it's not. Because we want to believe that we know what's what.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but it must have been slightly different for you, Lewis, because you, you came into it with both perspectives.
0: I did. And, and I had no idea what I was getting into when I went into medical school. I thought we would study healing and I was so shocked when I got there. And I you know, I I, in my book Coyote Medicine I I wrote about sitting in a lecture where the professor told us that life was a relentless progression toward death, disease and decay. And the physician's job was to slow the rate of decline. (laughs) <laughs> and it just freaked me out. And I had to, so as soon as that was over, I ran over to the Stanford Indian Center. I was at Stanford University. And Henrietta Blue, Eye, Blue Eyes was sitting at the desk. And I said, Henrietta, I need an elder. And, and she got out her Rolodex and found two names for me. And I was there the next weekend. And so elders helped me get through medical school by keeping my indigenous perspective alive and healthy and flourishing, while I learned the other way of seeing things. And, and um, <clears throat> so so for I guess for me I had to learn how to be in how to be a, a, a secret agent in a mainstream world you know how how to be like an indigenous person occupying a mainstream world and and you know it it, it was um, I mean I I I'm also a hybrid person. I mean, I've got some Greek and Swedish ancestors as well as Cherokee and Lakota, And um, so I guess I was called to that task, you know, by being a hybrid person. Um, But, um, you know, I don't, it wasn't easy. And um I don't know. I I just I just have this great admiration for you, Alistair, that you're so curious and respectful. And if if I could figure out how to teach other people to be that way, that would be awesome.
2: That, um Thank you. Thank you very much, Lewis. Wadamu, I, I was just wondering um, if if you've got any comments, like, in some ways, you were a teacher for me. Um, and you seemed to foster, you know, you seem, you were fostering curiosity on my side, often by um, dropping bombshells. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering if you've got any comments about, what you know, what it was like for you being a secret Wairua agent in mainstream, you know, when you worked for the Gisborne Services and then when you came and worked at the
1: Um I was once asked by the Wakahūya programme, the one that's on um, our documentary, whatever you call it, um, if we were the tutors, uh, the tutors, and I remember saying to them, oh, tutors, or kaiako, and I remember saying to them, no, we are students, who often teach. So I think that follows that we may get into a position of teaching, but we must also be taught. So it's it's easy. I'll drop dropping little little snippets and a lot of our one, and we've just finished over the last month, the three back to back ones, where people are saying why don't you just tell us? And I said, well, why don't you just go and look? <laughs> now, why don't I explain the <laughs> whole thing? And so I would drop little snippets and and stop and sort of leave them frustrated. But then I say, go and look it up. Go and search for it. Don't take my word for it. Think about it. Yeah. And I think well, that's great for
2: sorry. No, no, sorry. I was, I don't want to interrupt. No, you go. (laughs) Um, I'm just laughing because I I can remember quite a few of those situations where you drop a snippet and then you just disappear for about five months. (laughs) And I would, I would be mulling over the latest bombshell um, because it's interesting, Lewis, sometimes the, the snippet would be a piece of information which totally blows away my view of the world. Like, for example, one of the little snippets, what I'm talking about is that he's seen in the room with this family, the, actually it was a great, great grandmother that he saw of this uh, girl. Um, And no, of the mum the great-great-grandmother of the mum, but he said, but he also saw two other men and he described them in detail. And then after that, Wodemu we went back up to Gisborne and I didn't see him for five months. And then mm. I gave gave the a video, I I'd videoed Whatamu's description and, and gave that video to the mum and she went away and three or four months later, she came back and said, I can tell you who those men were because I've been researching. So, That that piece of information and that little bit of investigation meant that I had to rethink the parameters about how the world works. Um, Because there was kind of evidence there that Whittemoe had experienced something that relates to this family that was probably in a village context in the Pacific somewhere. and we were able to identify who these three ancestors were in the, in the family tree of this family. <laughs> um, and I never believed it was gonna be like that. And that, that doesn't fit in with my psychiatric paradigm that it's all about the here and now and it's a materialist world. And so it's quite freaky. And um, uh, a bit destabilizing really. I know it wouldn't be for you because we've had conversations about these things. So I know that that's part of your cosmology as well.
0: It is. And you know, I had to learn that you have to be careful about who you tell what your visions are. And, And I, I think one, one of the funniest things that I remember is when Wiramu and I first met, he, he saw my grandfather, who, who stands behind me, you know, so often when, I'm, when I give talks and gives me advice about what to say. And, um, and you know, we can, you know, in this indigenous, paradigm, I suppose, or we haven't shut down our capacity to see spirits. Whereas in the mainstream world, it's been completely dampened, you know, because it's considered crazy. And um, my, my wife was explaining to me because her father was Anglican. Um, And she said, so in the Anglican Church, um, ordinary people can't see spirits, only priests. Mm. And and I said, well, in my world, everyone sees spirits, including (laughs) priests. (laughs) (laughs) So it's more democratic. You know, you you don't need the high muckety mucks to to negotiate for you with the spirits. You can just talk to them directly and like, hey, Grandma, how's it going? You know, and and, I mean, and sometimes I get so annoyed with my grandmother because she's like always watching me. I'm like, Grandma, please (laughs) take a break. But, um, yeah, it's interestingly different worlds, isn't it? Mm. And that's what we're trying to negotiate, though. Because, you know, and I think that's um, what we've all managed to accomplish is is to create collaborations where both ways of being can be valid, you know, Mm -hmm acceptable. Yeah. And, and I think what we're trying, what I'm focusing on now is like, how, how do we move toward wellness? Like, how do we use these ideas to help communities and people thrive, you know, be well, be in harmony and balance and in Lakota, we say, "Wechozani," you know, which means to be in a healthy balance with all the forces around us.
1: Yep. yep. And yep. Uh, yeah. See, um, the reason we came to work at the service where we are now is because when we first, when they first asked us to present to them. We presented on spirituality. And then the CEO said, we want a, a spirit-led service or way-driven service. And when they asked us to work it, was easy to say yes because we knew that was what they wanted. And so here, the service is led by the spirit, supported by the clinical. It's... Um, it's working wonderfully. Our own service opens up in the first week of July, where we have two doctors attached to us, nurses and whatnot, but it's led by why you, spiritually led. And the thing is about indigenous, or the thing is about people of all cultures, natures, backgrounds, is that the belief that we're first and foremost spiritual beings experiencing this human existence. And I believe that the journey of this, of this as a human, is to find myself, is to journey this earth looking for who I am as a way to a being, as a spiritual being. And it's... it's, it's it's a journey that I, 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 you know, I love. I just want to walk in spirit. My doctors get frustrated. The doctors here who work in our clinic get frustrated because they can't nail me down when they want to pin something to test my blood pressure or they want to check my heart or they want to check my blood levels. And I'm saying, I don't need it. <laughs> if I die because of what I believe, then it's time for me to go anyway, because the, the ultimate thing is we're all going to die someday. Yeah, I see it
0: now. You remind me I of my. I was going to say we moved my great grandmother, believed that you should die healthy. Yeah. So you, yeah. So you so can party. The world. <laughs> right. So you can have a big party on the other
1: side. And in I'm the, the next world,
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And yeah. compared to my wife, I've remarked to my wife and said, "Honey, I'm really curious about the other side. Maybe I'm just going to kick off and go and have a look." She said, "No, you blinking <laughs> don't. You got to pay the rent, so I'm still here." <laughs>
2: <clears throat> so um... I've always felt sorry for Wetamo's doctor. I have to say. <laughs> And that's a good thing for me to, to know that my role with Wittimer is for us to work together, not for me to be his doctor.
0: <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> well, you know, I I work hard to convince my doctor trainees that it's more important to build a good relationship with someone. Then to make them do what you want, because if you have a good relationship with them, yep, they may do what you
1: want, yep,
0: because they want to yeah. do it.
1: <clears throat> yep. Yeah,
0: yeah. But that's such a hard concept for them to learn. Oh, it's just so alien to their training, pre previous mm-hmm. training.
1: Excuse yeah. me, guys. I, I've got somebody coming in in about half, in about a minute. Oh. Um, I just want to say what an honor to be part of this kōrero. Um. Yeah, and I just thank you so much, Lewis, for making it possible for Alistair and I to be able to share a few things. And hopefully you don't get sick of us and it's not the last time. So.
0: <laughs> hey, someday I'm going to come visit you guys. You know that.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Yeah,
0: someday COVID is going to be over and New yep. Zealand is going to open yep. and I'm going to be able to go there.
2: That'll be great, Lewis. I'm yeah. really looking forward to that. So am I, yeah.
0: Me too, yeah.
2: And Barbara, hopefully, will come too.
0: Oh, absolutely. I don't go
2: anywhere without her. Oh, that's good. Because
0: <laughs> yeah. 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 she's smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the brains that's, always make something go up front to do all the front work, so that's
0: right, that's right, that's what my
1: wife says, anyway. Yeah, mm.
0: we just have to admit that men are
1: inferior to women.
2: <laughs>
1: you got it, you got it. Well, I have to go, love and leave you guys. All right, all yep. right, Namaste. thank you, thank you,
2: thank you, yeah, thank you,
1: bye, bye. yep.
0: So, so maybe to wrap up, um, maybe if you could tell a, a like a give a story about a a case a, a person that you and Wiramu worked together with, um, and then I, I'll talk about someone that I took to see an elder, and then and probably that'll be good. That'll be enough.
2: Okay. Um, well, I'm thinking about a young person. um, What, what do you reckon? What was what's the purpose of the story, Lewis? Is it about working together?
0: Yeah, about about working together. um, Collaboratively.
2: Yeah. Um, Well, the the young person that I've got in mind was experiencing a voice uh, which had been disturbing for him for about four or five months, and he was also having some kind of like seizures, but they weren't really epileptic seizures, and he was very distressed by this, and After, after meeting with him, there are a few things that made me think this could be a Māori issue and certainly that it would be well worth meeting with Waramu. And what I noticed was as soon as I mentioned the possibility of meeting up with Waramu and explained his role as a cultural therapist at our team and that if, if we were wondering about wider problems, he might know something about this immediately both he and his mum were keen. So they immediately had a hunch this was a good idea. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Because I think if, if I'd suggested another doctor for them to meet meet with, they might have been interested, but I'm not sure. Um, and it was interesting, there were certain things that happened. I, I actually, Wodhamu had left our service by this time, and so... I had to catch him when he was passing, he, was, he would drive into Wellington to get on a plane to go to the Chatham Islands, which are about um, 500 miles off the coast of New Zealand. And then he, so he came back from the Chatham Islands, um, arrived on a plane and met up with us at our service one evening. And he had some um, uh, seafood from the Chatham Islands which he was having with um, fried chips, and so he was kind of having a me. He was having a meal, and he invited the young person that was in the staff room of the service where um, the young person and his mum had just arrived at. He invites the young person to come in and have some of his his fries with him, um, and some kina, which was what this um, seafood was which is like sea urchins. Um, and the young person who was very nervous, relaxed uh, in that situation. Um, and that that's not the usual kind of professional uh, way to meet. Um, and, you know, as a psychiatrist, I wouldn't share my fish and chips or my um, burger with... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> With the family necessarily but in a cultural context that changes everything that's that's looking after the well-being of the other person that's manaaki which is a maori word for taking looking after the mana or the status of the other person um so these things were happening and i i may not have had much clue about it um And then when we were meeting up, one of the first things Wodamu said was, I've got this tight feeling in my chest and um, I'm just wondering if anyone can help me understand that. And again, that's not not usually how I start a session with a family. Um, And so he's talking about his own intuition or his own bodily experience of what's going on for this young person. And the mum understood that immediately. She said, well, yeah, I think George is pretty anxious about this. Um, And I'm sure that's what you're picking up. So she knew what he was referring to. Whereas I was a bit mystified. Um, And and so I guess if if we're thinking about two-eyed seeing, we have to think, How can we create space for a totally different process? (coughs) Um, And it might involve (coughs) puzzling um, interactions, which are not part of my professional ethic or way of operating but which if I sit back and, and notice and think about it and, and maybe later on ask what i about, I might discover something pretty interesting. So I guess this is the, the other side of that curiosity. I mean, eventually in that session, what am I was able to intervene in such a way that this young person no longer had this, the pseudo seizures and the voice disappeared? And of course... Uh, that was highly impressive for me. But again, I had to suspend my own judgment, as you were talking about before. I had to suspend my own psychiatric judgment, um, which would lead me to dismiss that as just a coincidence. Very happy coincidence, but it may be just a coincidence. Um, and in fact, my wife jokes about coincidences um, and and medical um, perspective on um, it just so happened they got better at that time. Um, because um, it is, I mean, from a medical point of view, we're, we're often looking closely at whether they got better in the right timing that relates to the medication I prescribed. But if they got better in the timing, it happens that they're in the same room as Wootamoo, That might just be a coincidence so i know that i'm sure you know what i'm talking about lewis
0: oh absolutely yes indeed (laughs) yeah Uh
2: so it's sort of an interpretation of um how things pan out and what what the explanation is
0: yeah yeah
2: and the two-eyed seeing definitely is a helpful idea for thinking about let's look at this from both angles and let's wonder about why it got better right now, um, when Wotamu's intervened in this way. And this, I, I might ask Wotamu what he thinks, and I might ask the family what they think, and I might keep thinking about that because it's very easy to dismiss. But um, sometimes it's those important things; those are the important things for us to notice.
0: Indeed, indeed. And and I think that for the most part, our colleagues, most of our, many of our colleagues are convinced that the only treatment is medication. And, and I mean, and I do prescribe medication, as I'm sure you do, because I, I see it as a way to keep people out of hospital while we do the other work that needs to be done. Um, but I don't see it as the solution. I see it as the the sort of cast that you put on a fracture in order to to create a scaffolding to get to healing. Um, and that, and I don't think that. I mean, I know that many of our colleagues wouldn't agree with that. Can you speak a little bit more to that idea?
1: Um.
2: I guess the more that I've worked with Winamoo, the more that I've become less sure about, uh, I guess, certain aspects of medication treatment. Um, I like your idea of a cast. Um, you know, even if I'm thinking about an antidepressant, sometimes I'm thinking, well, if this if this medication can get this young person out of this hole that they're stuck in, so that they can contemplate their life and um, address a few things that are going on and then start to make feel like they're making some progress. Um, then they've got an opportunity to do their own healing. Um, and so the medication is useful during that time to lift them out of that. Um, but the healing happens elsewhere, and that's, that's I like that metaphor about the cast that you're talking about. But I can can also think about, um, you know, this young person I just talked about, he had been prescribed risperidone to help him with the voice that he was experiencing, which ultimately now I think was coming from a spiritual source because um, during during the time that he was on the risperidone, which is an antipsychotic medication designed to I guess reduce the frequency, hopefully, even take away a voice. That would be the ideal. Um, what he described was the voice seemed like it was talking to him from the other side of a wall. And it was more, a bit more dull, and not as not right up close beside him, but a bit further away. But it was still there. And he could still feel the negative entity next to him. And so Risperidone somehow seemed to influence the voice he was experiencing, but it didn't take it away. What took it away was an interaction with Waramu, when Waramu then did karakia, and, and then helped the boy get a sense of how he needed to address what was going on in his life, and, for example, stop using um, marijuana and take his own sense of mana, his own sense of control in his life, and use his own method to push away this spiritual presence. So the medication did something. Um, and in, in some ways it was a little bit helpful for this young person, but Whitemur's solution was much more comprehensive. <clears throat> and, and ultimately he was advocating for the young person to heal his own life.
0: Right, right.
2: And um, it- does that, does that make sense?
0: That response? Oh, absolutely. But, and that's been my observation: that medication dampens the voices, but it it never takes them away. I mean, or rarely, I should say rarely, because never is a bad word. Rarely mm-hmm. does it completely eliminate them. But but talking to them and finding out what they want and and responding to them sometimes. Resolves them, and um, <clears throat> so um, I could tell. I could tell a little story to finish us up. Um, it, it's a story that I wrote about in Coyote Healing because it was it was so powerful for me. So. Um, back in the days when I had more time and and was much more poor um, I used to be a roadie for medicine men for healer, traditional healers and so um, there was a fellow uh, Melvin Gray Fox that I liked to help and Melvin got called to a town in British Columbia. Um, Interestingly because, so Melvin was from North Dakota and he lived near an Air Force base and they, they sent a Canadian Air Force person to that base. And somehow he met Melvin's daughter and they got together and got married. So then they went back so then they went back to British Columbia she moved back with her husband and and so in this town in British Columbia they had uh, three young people committed suicide together in a kind of pact and the town was devastated so they so Melvin's daughter said well call call Melvin he can come do something so they did, and and Melvin came to do what's called a uweepi ceremony, which translates as "they tie them up," and it's a ceremony that was brought to the people in 1868 to the Lakota people by a guy named Hornchips, who went up to the top of the mountain Bear Butte, and and cried for a vision and got this ceremony. And the ceremony was supposed to cure white people disease. And um, so, um, in the ceremony, first off, it has the room has to be completely dark. And um, the leader is, is tied up his hands are tied behind his back. He's tied up in a rug, he's, he's, he's wrapped up like a mummy, and he's put in the center of the room, surrounded by 405 pata. A pata is a piece of fabric in which tobacco is placed and tied up on a string, and it's all around the room. And there, there's, um, well, there might be dogs, Everywhere you go, and in in North America, there's dogs. But um, so there's people that sing and drum and the spirits untie him. And then he doctors the people to get rid of white people disease, paquea disease. And so we were there to do that ceremony. And um, so we were there in a, um, there was a store it was a one-stop signs town. There was the Indian agency on one corner, the Catholic church on the other corner, the store we were in on the third corner, and the the garage to fix cars on the fourth corner. So we were in the store, you know, just hanging out because we'd already gotten the room prepared to be completely dark. And so suddenly we hear kabam kabam gunshots. And so we look out the door and there's a guy in camouflage camo uniform with a shotgun shooting it, shooting into the air saying, I want to be an Indian. I want to be an Indian. And that scared me. But but so Melvin, who was with us, he walked right out to that guy and he said, if you want to be an Indian, give me that there shotgun. And so <laughs> the guy did. And I, I don't know whatever happened to the shotgun. But uh, so Melvin yells at us. He said, give me some tobacco. You know, so we got some tobacco and ran it out to Melvin. And um Melvin gave it to the guy and said now here you offer it to me four times and then I'll make you an Indian. And so the guy does that. And then Melvin looks at me and he says he says to the guy you go sit in the back of that pickup truck truck and then he looks at me and says you're the damn psychiatrist you go sit with him. <laughs> so <laughs> so I did <laughs> and I can yeah. I can testify that he was completely bonkers or as we say in the trade crazy um, I mean he's quite psychotic and um, so I I mean and the temperature I might add was was minus thirty, which I know you don't get in New Zealand so it was a cold back of the pickup truck and <laughs> and finally, you know Everyone comes out, it's time to go do the ceremony. So we go in to do the ceremony and Melvin hands him a drum and he says, mm-hmm. "He says, here, you beat on the drum and try to stay in rhythm. And so, you know, he does that. And surprisingly, he keeps pretty good time for a white boy. And mm-hmm. um, so anyway, the, the, we get through the ceremony, which was amazing. But I won't talk about that. And um, so Melvin says, well, I got a relative. Her husband just died. She needs a help in the house. You want to come You want to come home with me and help her? And this guy says, yeah, yeah. So Melvin says, all right. And um, that was before 9-11 in this country. So in those days, we just kept a big stack of driver's license. Because one Indian looks like another, and so we just sorted through. The, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we just sorted through the driver's license, and we found one that sort of looked like this guy, you know. Yeah. And we said, "Here, this is your name when you cross the border." <laughs> so you know, we drove across the border into North Dakota, and um, Melvin set him up to you know to be the handyman for this woman, and mm-hmm. and. Melvin, um, true to his word, he helped the guy learn language and songs and help out at ceremonies. And after a while, I lost track of the guy. And so here I am in the Denver airport, maybe four years later, and this fellow comes up to me and says, hey, you remember me? And I'm like, yeah. Maybe. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and he says, yeah, you know, I'm that guy that wanted to be an Indian. Remember me? And he said, and Melvin says, I'm an Indian now. And I said, oh, really? How is that? And he said, well, I know the language and I know all the songs and I know all, how to help at all the ceremonies. And Melvin says, that makes me an Indian. I said, cool. I said, and he said, yeah, he says, I used to be a schizophrenic, but now I'm an Indian. <laughs> and I said, "Oh, wow, that's that's great." And he said, "And Melvin says in a couple of years, if I work hard, I can become a drug and alcohol counselor." <laughs> so, so I was like, "Wow, you know, how many of us would take a guy home for four or five years and take him in and and yeah. give him?" The
2: opportunity
0: to heal, mm. and that's what Melvin did. And yeah, I can't say I've ever done that. But
2: no, that's a remarkable story.
0: Yeah, and and it just says to me that you know anything is possible in the right context. If if you put together the right situation you can move mountains you can heal schizophrenia whatever that is i mean and um yeah so um so getting people to elders has been one of my callings mm.
1: right
0: story I'm,
2: lewis
0: yeah and I'm jealous that Wermu pulled it off in one session.
1: <laughs>
0: well, we probably have enough material for people to watch. And uh, any, any final thoughts before we call it, call it a day? Day for you, evening um, for me.
2: Um, I've got two questions to ask you, but that would be offline.
0: Okay, okay,
2: Not not related to this topic, but look, I've just thoroughly enjoyed having a conversation as always, Lewis, and um, I'm really glad that we were able to catch Whitmu for a bit indeed and um, and I think these these are very uh, this conversation is close to our hearts and you know what we're thinking about at the moment around how do we how do we talk about this, how do we articulate these which are very simple. You know what Marvin Marvin did, or Mervyn? Very simple, actually. Um, even though it's hard to do and, you know, it, it's a rare story. Um, what he did, he kind of accepted the guy and he accepted his request. Right. And offered him something, well, offered him something pretty amazing, which most, um, you know, that guy at that moment in his life, he was open to something that most people would never actually do. He was like, he was like a psychiatrist um, wanting to immerse himself in another worldview. Um, and he, despite his psychotic illness, he had a remarkable openness as well. And he mm-hmm. just accepted Mervyn's direction. He obviously had an, an, a knowing that This guy knows what he's talking about. He did. Marvin he he actually knew what an elder was.
0: And and you know, I don't know how he knew that. I I've never known Mm. how he knew that. Because he was raised middle class in Seattle Mm. in a mainstream Lutheran family. So how did he know that? Mm. I mean, it may have come Mm. with his psychosis. You know, it may have come as an opening in which he was given that knowledge. Uh, Mm. But I don't know. But it's fascinating, isn't it? That he knew. Yes. He knew what to ask for. And when it was offered, he knew to, to accept it.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Which is remarkable in and of itself.
2: Yes. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. So thank you so much for sharing that story. It's a fascinating story.
0: Thank you. So I'm going to stop the recording. And and uh, thank you guys for being part of this. And sayonara.